Welcome to Boston Confidential, Bean Town's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There is a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Buckle up, because it's going to get bumpy. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming back to Boston Confidential. My name is Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator in the metropolitan Boston, Massachusetts area, and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. We focus on business background investigations for the investment and business communities. However, if you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact Due Diligence, and I can get you going in the right direction at any rate. By the time you guys are hearing this, our website should be up, and that will be located on the net at bostonconfidential.net, and you can reach me anytime through email at barry at bostonconfidential.net. I also wanted to supply some good news about the book I had written earlier this year during this shutdown. The book is called The Business of Private Investigation, Tips and Tricks to Jumpstart Your Agency. It's on Amazon and bondsandnoble.com. And the good news is we're on six continents. I've sold books in six continents. I haven't had any downloads from Antarctica, but we're still, we're still working on that one. All right, guys, let's get to the podcast. This week's episode features the Entwistle case out of Hopkinton, Massachusetts. The crime occurred January 2006, but I think it's best if we start at the beginning. That way I can give you some background on the husband, Neil Entwistle, and his wife, Rachel. Rachel's maiden name was Sousa, and she was born in Kingston, Massachusetts. Kingston is a beautiful community just south of Plymouth, Massachusetts, and is about 55 miles from Boston. It's located in cranberry country. There's a ton of cranberry bogs and Portions of Kingston and neighboring Carver can actually be pretty rural. Rachel was a great student, and by high school, she had blossomed into a track star. However, she wasn't without some hardships. She did lose her father, Paul Souza, when she was nine. She lived with her mother, Priscilla, and soon Priscilla met a gentleman by the name of Joseph Matarazzo, who became Rachel's stepdad. Rachel was a committed track star, always trying to beat her last time, but she was also an excellent student. And by the end of high school, she had earned admittance to Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts, and that is no small achievement. Rachel was a huge fan of Boston poet Henry David Thoreau. So nobody was surprised when she chose English literature as a major at Holy Cross. She finished her freshman year at Holy Cross and was accepted to the University of York in England as an exchange student. Rachel excelled at her studies, but just as she had in high school at Silver Lake Regional, she excelled in athletics This time, she joined the crew team where she met a handsome young Englishman named Neil Entwistle from Worksop, England. Neil and Rachel's 
backgrounds were starkly different. Neil grew up in Worksop, which at one time was pretty affluent, but through the 70s and 80s, the economy took a toll on Worksop. The population is about 40,000, and it is actually on the outskirts of Robin Hood's fictitious home, Sherwood Forest. So I didn't actually know that was an actual place, but Worksop was kind of a workaday town, mid-size, about 150 miles from London. Neil's mom, Yvonne, there's some indication that she was a bit overbearing, and his father, Clifford, was, I think, would be the equivalent of a city councillor in the city of Boston. Worksop, England, was a mining town, but as the economy went south, all the mining jobs went with it, and that's where the men worked. And in Worksop, there was several ribbon factories. They're actually known for their ribbons, but those jobs were soon outsourced to China and similar countries. Neil did have an older brother, Russell, and they were quite close. And the two boys were close with their mother, but they weren't engaged in the sporting life at school. Neil was pretty reserved, as was his brother, Russell. But Neil was an excellent student and ended up receiving at least a partial scholarship to University of York, where he met a beautiful student from America named Rachel Souza. Both Rachel and Neil joined the crew team and they were stationed in the same boat, actually staring at one another during these races. And they soon fell in love and were basically the talk of the university. By all accounts, they were inseparable at school. However, Rachel was soon beckoned back to the United States as she finished her year at University of York. She had to return to the United States to finish her time at Holy Cross University in Worcester, Massachusetts. Rachel finished up her final year at Holy Cross, or the Cross as we call it here in Massachusetts, but she couldn't stop thinking of Neil. She was head over heels in love with him and he with her. So in 2001, after graduation, Rachel moved back to England and settled with Neil in a small cottage in Redditch, England, where Rachel taught English and drama at a private school called St. Augustine's Catholic High. Neil, who had been a computer engineering major, found work with a company called QuinkQ. It was a research arm of the British Army, and his job was somewhat secretive. He'd often joke that he could tell you what he did for a living, but he'd have to kill you afterwards. So it was during this time that many people said Rachel was the happiest she'd ever been. She was enjoying herself and she loved teaching at the school. Neil was absent from at least what Rachel's school friends say that he wasn't around much and was working a lot. But Rachel seemed fine, and she got along very well with her students, and she was kind of like a peer leader with them, as she was not much older than most of the kids in school. Rachel and Neil's relationship appeared strong and continued to grow, and they eventually got married on August 10, 2003, at a small ceremony at the Second Parish Church of Plymouth 
in Manomet, Massachusetts, which I believe is just another section of Plymouth. Life seemed to be going exceedingly well for the couple. They were outwardly happy and everybody around them thought they were made for each other. So Neil and Rachel appeared to be the absolute postcard for happiness. Rachel was dying to get started having a family and that did occur on April 9th, 2005. The baby Lillian Rose Entwistle was brought into the world in England at 12.57 a.m., weighing exactly seven pounds. She appeared to be an exuberant baby and was the mirror image of Rachel. I guess it's fair to say that both parents were beaming. The Entwistles became that somewhat annoying couple that everything was going right for. The type of couple you'd get a Christmas card from You'd see their beautiful family and how life was going in. You'd wish them well. You'd feel a little bit jealous, though, but you'd keep their Christmas card on your refrigerator because their baby was so beautiful. Rachel was positively beaming, and Neil was a doting dad. But they wouldn't be on Boston Confidential if it didn't all go wrong. So stand by. We're going to take a quick break. After that, we'll get back to it. Thanks. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. Okay, everybody, we're back. I just want to take this opportunity to provide a bit of a disclaimer here. What you're going to hear next is going to be very disturbing. It's going to involve child abuse and worse. So this portion will not be for the faint of heart. Proceed with caution, please. Okay, so things seemed perfect in the Entwistle household. They had come back to the United States and were living in Cava, Massachusetts with Rachel's mom and stepdad, the Matarazzos. The Entwistles were attempting to find their own place to live and they ended up finding a place shortly thereafter in Hoptington, Massachusetts, which is just over the hill from where I live now. Rachel and Neil moved into a beautiful colonial at Six Cubs Path, Hoptington. It was a neighborhood where the homes were probably $550,000 and they rented a beautiful colonial for 2,700 a month, although Neil still hadn't found work. And I think Rachel was the primary caregiver to the baby, so I don't think she was at work either. So Christmas turns into New Year's, and things are still going swimmingly. But it would later turn out that Rachel had complained to some family and friends that some of her credit cards had stopped working. And she had some discussions with Neil about finances, but he dismissed her fears and said she had nothing to worry about. So life appeared to still be going well. So much so that Rachel had made a dinner date, a dinner party date with some of her friends. Joanna Gately and her sister Maureen were due to dine with the Entwistles at their Hoptington home on January 21st, I believe it was. Rachel was very excited about this dinner party and was worried she wouldn't have the house that she had just moved into ready for guests by that time. 
but she did her best and dinner plans went on. But when Joanna and Maureen arrived for their dinner date, there was no answer at the door. They could hear a dog barking inside. They saw no vehicle in the garage and became worried. They soon contacted Rachel's mother and she soon revealed that she also hadn't been able to get a hold of Rachel from the previous day. Now the trio here became extremely worried. Nobody could get a hold of Neil as well. So they contacted the Hopkinton police and kind of pestered them to come over and do a well-being check because this was so out of character for Rachel and Neil, they thought as well. The Hoptington police lightly forced entry into the home and did a cursory search of the rooms. They saw not much out of the ordinary you'd see in any American home where people are just moving in. They really had no legal standing to conduct any type of real search. So this was just a cursory, are you okay type check. So the police relay this information to Joanna and Maureen Gately that nothing appears to be out of the ordinary in the home. The Gately's took the dog out to go to the bathroom and looked around a little bit themselves. The police had to dismiss them from the residence because they wouldn't have been allowed to stay there. It would have been a trespassing issue. But the Gately's were so concerned about this situation that they actually stayed the night in the driveway of the home. Keep in mind, this was January in New England and the weather would likely have been frigid. So these are some good friends looking out and they were very, very worried. If the Gately's were worried, the Matarazzos were frantic. They ended up calling a friend of theirs, a former state police detective, Joe Flaherty, who was a legendary homicide investigator in the area and relayed his fears to him, and Flaherty could tell by the tone of his voice that something was desperately wrong. He started to act as a liaison between the Matarazzos and the Hoptington police. The Hoptington police, by this time, were also becoming alarmed. When nobody was able to reach Neil, or Rachel for that matter, the police began to suspect that this was something more than a missed dinner date. They conducted another search of the house. As the Hopkinton officers entered the home at Six Cubs Path, they could smell what they described as a smell like dirty diapers and became alarmed. Now the search became more intense and they went upstairs to the bedroom and discovered that the smell that they had endured was not dirty diapers, but human decomposition. Both Rachel and Lillian, nine months old, were found in the bed covered with the comforter and the sheets. There were no immediate signs of how mother and daughter died. That wouldn't be revealed until the autopsy, but there were signs of obvious death besides for the smell. Rachel had been holding Lily on her left side and they remained this way from the last moments of life until after their death. The police had to tell the Matarazzos the bad news. They cleared the house because it was now an active crime scene, but they went downstairs and spoke with the Matarazzos and Priscilla lost control of her legs and had to be held up by Joe Matarazzo, by Joe's strong hands. Joe's face immediately went white and 
the couple didn't know what to do. But now the police investigation had to focus on Neil Entwistle. They didn't know if he was another victim somewhere else in the house. Was he kidnapped? Or did he commit this heinous crime? The Massachusetts State Police took control of the investigation almost from the outset because the Hopkinton police don't have a homicide unit. It's such a small town. And that's how it works in Massachusetts. For most cities and towns outside of, say, Boston and maybe Worcester or Springfield, most police departments don't have a dedicated homicide unit. The state police comes in and takes over and works with the local agency to whatever end the investigation may come to. Okay, so the investigation begins. The state police put out an all-points bulletin for Neil's BMW SUV. That vehicle was quickly found at Boston's Logan International Airport. And the state police scoured through video and they found Neil purchasing a ticket on British Airways at 5 a.m. on the morning of January 21st. He boarded that flight and departed Boston. People throughout all of this have been trying to get a hold of Neil on his cell phone and were unable to do so. That made people think that Neil may be a victim in this crime as well, but it started to build that Neil, for whatever reason, had fled the country. A Massachusetts State Police detective finally tracked Neil down at his mother and father's house in England. During this conversation, the state police detective thought he was going to be telling Neil something he didn't know, that his wife and daughter had been murdered. Neil replied that he did in fact know that they were dead, and his story was this. Neil stated in a less than emotional voice, he stated that he had departed his Hopkinton home around 9 a.m. and his wife and daughter were fine and he had left them in the bedroom. He returns around 11 a.m. and this is when he finds both of them shot dead in the bedroom. Keep in mind there that the police on scene didn't know the cause of death, yet Neil did. So he goes on to say that he covered their bodies with a blanket and went downstairs to stab himself to death, commit suicide with a kitchen knife, but he felt like that would be too painful. So he leaves his dead infant and wife in bed and drives down to Carver, Massachusetts, to the Matarazzo's house to obtain a gun that he had previously fired with Joe Matarazzo, but when Neil arrives at the Matarazzo household, he couldn't get in. There was nobody there, no answer at the door. This would come into play later. So Neil goes on to tell the state police detective on a recorded phone call that when he found the Matarazzo's house locked and vacant, he decided to fly home to England on the next available flight. So he leaves the body of his family in Hopkinton travels south to Carver, Massachusetts, and naturally goes to the airport just after that. Keep in mind that Neil had a cell phone with him at all times. He didn't alert authorities. It's unclear if he ever wanted to alert authorities, but he got on a flight across the pond and went back to mommy and daddy's house. 
as you can imagine, alarm bells were going off with the state police and the Hopkinton police. And almost immediately, they applied for an international arrest warrant with the British police. Neil, although still feigning innocence, did not return to the United States for the funeral of his baby girl, Lillian, and his wife, Rachel. On February 8th, 2006, a week to the day after their funerals, Neil Antwist was arrested by the extradition unit of London's Metropolitan Police Department. Neil wanted to fight extradition, but he waived his right and was transported back to the United States on February 15th, and he was held without bail at the Middlesex County Jail in Cambridge, Mass. So during this time that the police were seeking Neil's extradition from Great Britain, they were simultaneously gearing up their investigation. And the state police in this case, Hopkinton police, did an excellent job, although I don't think it was that difficult. The investigation revealed four days on the 16th, January 16, 2006, Neil logged on to his computer and used a search engine and used these terms. How to kill yourself. How to kill somebody with a knife. Suicide. Euthanasia. He got one reply from one of the search engines, which stated, and I quote, stabbing someone to death can take longer than you might think unless you have the person incapacitated and immediately go for a kill shot. Blood loss that results from striking less lethal zones causes a slower death and weakens your victim at the same time. Well, I guess that was good enough for Neil. He got the response he wanted. He continued with his internet searches, but this time, just after searching for how to kill somebody with a knife, he logs onto some sex sites. The first one was Adult Friend Finder, where he posted a request or profile. Neil stated that, I am in a current relationship, but looking for a bit more fun in the bedroom and a very discreet relationship just for fun. Neil exchanged some more emails with people on the sex site and at one point posted a picture of him clothed, but with his penis fully erect. And he posted that on the site and finished up his business there and presumably then went to bed with his wife. It was discovered by the state police and the Hopkinton police that Neil's life was a sham. Financially, he was in deep trouble. He had been running some scams, the typical, I'll make you a millionaire type thing on the internet. And don't forget, this was at the beginning of the internet where these scams were prevalent. He did make some money off it and he did use Rachel's name in some of these scams. And people were emailing this Rachel Entwistle, accusing her of thievery when it was really Neil Entwistle. Neil was buying everything on credit, and that was starting to come to an end. Some of the credit cards were shut off. Rachel had a discussion with him regarding finances, because as she went to buy something, she found the credit card to have been shut off, and it concerned her. But it was much more than that. They were literally going bankrupt. When the autopsy results of Lillian and Rachel returned, the cause of death was found to be gunshots from a small caliber 
weapon. Rachel had one wound at the top of her head in the hairline. Baby Lillian had been shot in the stomach. It was believed that the wound to Rachel was immediately fatal, but the wound to the baby was not, and she had suffered as she passed away, as she bled to death. The bullet went through the baby's stomach and torso and into Rachel's left breast. When Joe Matarazzo, Rachel's stepdad, was informed of the results, he panicked and he ran to his gun collection. He had been a gun enthusiast and had taken Neil shooting some months prior. And Mr. Matarazzo was very happy that his weapon was still in place, but he turned the weapon over to investigators and it was quickly determined that in fact, this was the murder weapon. DNA tests from the gun found that Rachel's blood was on the barrel as it was placed close to her head and there was what they call blowback onto the gun. So there was blood and brain matter at the barrel of the gun. There was also Neil's DNA on the handle. Now, Neil had handled this gun previously, so that wasn't surprising. But Rachel's blood and brain matter on the barrel was a big piece of evidence that the state police now had in their arsenal. A search of Neil's BMW SUV that had been located at Logan International Airport by the Massachusetts State Police revealed the presence of a set of keys. Those were the keys to the Matarazzo house. And if you remember previously, Neil stated that when he discovered the deaths of his family, he traveled to the Matarazzo house, but couldn't get in. Yet he had a set of keys right there. So the evidence was mounting that Neil was a family annihilator. So the evidence was stacking up one way against Neil. He flees Massachusetts after discovering the bodies of his family, leaving them to decompose in bed. Doesn't call anybody. There is a murder weapon with his DNA and his wife's DNA on it. And he had keys to the Matarazzo residence right in his vehicle. So things weren't looking good for Neil. But the Massachusetts State Police under District Attorney Martha Coakley had a theory of the case. And it basically went like this. On Thursday night, January 2006, Rachel and Lily were alive and spoken with family members so they could confirm that. The state believed that Neil, sometime in the past, went to the Matarazzo house and stole the weapon. He then used that weapon against his wife and daughter. The state believed that this was a murder-suicide, that Neil killed those closest to him and was set to commit suicide but was too chicken. He was too afraid and he backed out. And eventually he ran back to his mother's house. He ran back to mommy. And the state further believed that Neil did this to cover up his financial ruin in the fact that he wanted more sex in his life as indicated by his computer searches. The defense theory of this case was just despicable. And Neil, I believe, directed this. Neil stated that Rachel had suffered from postpartum depression, although there was little evidence of that. And Neil 
stated that he knew immediately upon seeing their dead bodies that Rachel had shot Lily in the stomach and through her own breast and then shot herself in the hairline in her own head. This theory of the case was hopeless and Neil's attorney knew that. His only avenue was to exclude the evidence obtained through these cursory searches, these well-being checks. They weren't allowed in the house because neither homeowner was present and gave them permission to do that. So Neil's legal team sought to have all of that evidence excluded as it was fruit of the poisonous tree because the search was not legal to begin with. If this defense had been successful, if the judge had disallowed that evidence, I believe Neil Entwistle would have walked free. But the judge did have some common sense and the evidence was allowed in. I just find his defense, his contention that Rachel, while suffering from postpartum depression, shot her baby in the stomach and the bullet went into her and then she shot herself in the head. It's just so reprehensible and unmasculine. He knows exactly what he did. At least admit it and go to prison. Neil Antwistle was found guilty for the two first-degree homicides and some gun charges on June 25th, 2008, and he was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, which is a mandatory sentence in Massachusetts for any first-degree homicide. In my humble opinion, Neil deserved the death penalty for this case, but we don't have that here in Massachusetts. But Neil was about to get some portion of what he deserved. After sentencing, he was originally housed at Sousa Baranowski Correctional Center, which most people in Massachusetts call Walpole. This is big boy prison. This is where people who screw up in other institutions in the Commonwealth are sent. But they also have a wing where they assess your dangerousness level and then they'll send you out to various prisons that correspond to your level of dangerousness, I guess. But this is definitely big boy prison. This is Massachusetts maximum security housing unit. In August of 2008, Neil Entwistle was tricked by a group of white supremacists into shaving his head, thinking that they had run a con on him saying if he shaved his head, he could join the prison gang. But this white supremacist prison gang reneged on their offer and stated that well, it's nice that you shaved your head, but we're going to kill you anyway. Due to these safety concerns, Neil was transferred to the old colony housing unit in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. This institution usually houses sexual offenders. They have a alcohol drug rehab center and typically less dangerous individuals are housed there, but it is no picnic. And I don't think Neil would do very well, and I don't think he is doing very well. And I think that's something he's gonna have to live with for the rest of his days, and he deserves it. Neil Entwistle has exhausted all of his appeals. He filed an appeal in August, 2012 with the state court in Massachusetts, which was denied. He appealed to the US Supreme Court and the Supreme Court refused to hear his case in January of 2013. Both appeals focused on the search of the house. The search was conducted absent a warrant because it was really just a well-being check to see if 
mother and daughter, and actually Neil were okay, but the search was conducted without permission or search warrant. So the appeals court said that the well-being check was enough to enter the home. And as I said previously, all appeals have been exhausted and Neil is going to spend the rest of his life in a Massachusetts prison, right where he belongs. Actually, he deserves to be on death row, but I guess I'll take this for right now. The Massachusetts State Police and the Hoptington Police did an excellent job in this investigation. And the district attorney's office also hit a home run in this. So very good job to all involved. I've done a lot of research on this case, but some of the research materials I had come across were absolutely outstanding. My friend Michelle McPhee wrote a book in 2008 called Heartless, the true story of Neil Entwistle and the cold-blooded murder of his wife and child. This is another impeccable work by Michelle McPhee thoroughly researched. You'll really enjoy it. So buy her book. But I'm going to leave you there, guys, and get on to the next one for you. And I'll keep you posted on what's coming next. Feel free to drop me a line at barry at bostonconfidential.net. And by the time you have this, we should have our website up and running. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care.